Good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here with and have you here with us on Easter Sunday as we celebrate the resurrection of Jesus Christ this morning. As you heard um, Angie mention earlier, we've been in a series entitled um, Finding Your Way Back to God, and this morning we want to wrap that, that series up. I don't know about you, but when was the last time, might even been this morning on the way coming into church, that you did something wrong, and you know you did something wrong. You might even acknowledge you did something wrong and confess that you did something wrong. And then after that happened, you braced yourself for what was coming next. You braced yourself to be judged for what you did wrong. You braced yourself for someone to bring down the hammer on you. You braced yourself for a profanity-laced um, undressing. You braced yourself to get chewed out. You braced yourself to hear, I can't believe you did it again. You braced yourself for that. Imagine what it would have been like instead of being judged and berated and criticized and condemned and maybe verbally or physically abused, you received grace. You did nothing to deserve it, but it was granted to you. Two summers ago, I was, uh, we, we were returning from, we'd been away on vacation, and my son and I went down to pick up our dog, who was, my sister was watching um, her for the week and down in Coatesville, and as we were driving through one of our local towns to be left unnamed, um, we suddenly saw in the rearview mirror flashing lights, and um, everybody knows what happens when you see those in the rearview mirror. You immediately ask yourself what? What did I do wrong? What did I do wrong? My son was a new driver at the time, and so I turned to him and so I said, did you see me slide through a stop sign? Not that he would have really noticed, but he might have, you know. Was I, was I going too fast? Did you, did you notice anything that was a little unusual that maybe that I shouldn't have been doing that I did? And he said, I don't know, Dad. I don't know what happened. I said, I don't know what happened either. So we, we sat there and we waited for the officer to come up, and the officer came up and proceeded to tell us that um, in one of these little unnamed towns that we had just driven through, I was driving 15 miles an hour over the speed limit. And um, I knew that I had nothing to dispute what he said, but in my gut, I really didn't think I had done that many things that wrong. But I received my ticket and uh, the fine that went along with that and the potential for points along with that. And I was also given an opportunity to appear before the district justice to plead my case. And so I chose to do this. Um, I didn't have much of an argument because my only argument was I just got back from vacation and I wasn't in a hurry to go anywhere. That's the, they always ask you that, right? Are you, are you in a hurry to go somewhere? And I'm, no, I wasn't in a hurry, you know. That was my only argument. Not much of an argument, but that's all I had. And uh, I knew the judge would have some evidence, likely a, a readout from a radar gun that would show that I was guilty as charged. And, and then I would take my punishment and I would go home. But I thought, what could it hurt? So I thought, let me go and give it a shot. Well, as I walked into the courtroom that morning, um, I was met by the police officer who said, Sir, I looked up your record online, and uh, you actually are, are a pretty good driver. And he said, um, what I'd like to do is I'd be willing to reduce the miles over the speed limit you were so that you don't get any points on your license, which would affect potentially insurance rates. Are you interested in that? And I said, where do I sign on the dotted line? And... Uh, <laughs> Um, I thanked him, signed the paperwork, walked down the door, then knowing that I had received and experienced grace, something I did not deserve, something that I was not due in any way, 
but I received grace. Because anybody that knows me knows that I tend to drive a little fast on our country roads back here, and I've received my, new, my fair share of tickets for uh, in odd and various uh, unusual situations over the years. So I clearly knew that this was grace that I was experiencing. Well, I don't know your story, but what I do know is that everyone wants to experience grace. Everyone wants to experience grace. The reality is we all mess up. We all blow it. We all make mistakes. We all sin. We all do something we know we shouldn't have done. And we all respond in different ways when that happens. Some of us try to cover it up. We try to hide it, hoping nobody will see it. But um, eventually it always comes out, doesn't it? It always does. Some of us try to rationalize. Some of us say, there's no way I could have been going that fast. You don't say that to the officer, hopefully, but you're thinking that in your mind, you know. Or you're thinking, or you might even say, well, I was just driving with traffic. Why would you pull me over? Everybody else was driving the, the same speed, and we try to rationalize our ways out of it. Some of us confess, but our confession is not honest confession. It's just trying to manipulate the system. You might flash the officer a smile. You might say, hey, do you know my brother's uncle's cousin who's an officer in the department, you know, in the next township over, you know, hoping that he'll let you slide. But rarely do we take responsibility, at least not initially. Confess it and then, get the con- and then accept the consequences. But even more rare is for us to experience grace. When was the last time you received grace from a boss? Something gave you something you didn't deserve. Maybe a coworker. How about a parent, even if you're still an adult? When was the last time you received grace from a parent? Maybe your spouse. Probably the person who gives you grace more than anybody. How about the government? How many are hoping you get some grace tomorrow? You know, um, you know, we just don't experience grace very often, do we? And we've been looking at this story the last few weeks, the story of the prodigal son. And if you have a Bible, if you want to turn to Luke 15, uh, and you can follow along in your phone or tablet as well. Um, if you don't have a Bible, grab one on the, the rack in front of you on the chair there. It's page 848. And this is a story that we've been tracking along with over the last few weeks. And let me just give you some highlights of the story. The story is a fictional story. It's not a true story. It's a pretty simple story. It's about a father and two sons. And the father pictures God. That's who he represents. And then the two sons, there's a younger son and an older son, they represent the audience that Jesus is talking to. And it tells us that in Luke 15, verse 1. And the audience is a very diverse audience. Part of the audience is the local religious leaders. You might call them the local ministerium, a local group of pastors, religious dudes. And they're represented by the older brother. The younger brother is represented by a group called the tax collectors and sinners. Tax collectors were so bad they got their own category. Um, And they were represented by the younger brother. And as the story goes... The younger brother said, Dad, it's time for me to strike out on my own. Instead of just telling Dad it was time to strike out on my own, he said, by the way, I'm going to need some cash, so I, I just, let's just pretend you were dead and gone, and so give me half of everything that's coming to me now. Um, overwhelmingly humiliating response. And the father doesn't put up a fight, doesn't put up an argument. The father just does it. Sells off livestock, sells off lands, liquidates whatever he can to give his son half of what would come to him if the father died. 
And so the son, it goes on to say in the story, goes off to a far and distant land, far away from mom and dad, far away from anybody knowing what was going on, although somehow the older brother found out. Older brothers always find out. Um, and he splurged. He partied. He lived it up, high on the hog. And uh, it was all gone. It was all gone. And then suddenly in the land that he was living, a famine struck. There was no food for anybody. You only had what you could get to survive, no work. And the only work he could find was working in a pig pen. Um, humiliating for a Jewish man to have to do this. The worst imaginable job. And in the midst of that pig pen experience, he, uh, the, the text says that he came to his senses. He had an awakening of sorts. And he realized, my life is not what I had hoped it would be. And he realized, my father's servants are better off than I am. Maybe I could just go back and kind of throw myself at the mercy of dad and just offer to work for him. Maybe I could do that. And as the son walked into that experience and, and gave some consideration to that, um, that's where we ended our, the story last week. And as we've been talking through this story, what we've done is we've said this story is really a picture of this journey for many people. It's finding your way back to God. And it doesn't matter if you're like the younger brother and you've wandered away and you've been on your own or you're like the older brother. Maybe you've stayed put and you've been the good son or daughter or mother or father and you've done everything you're supposed to do, but there's still no real connection. You're like a stranger with God. It's just going through the motions. And so we've said that this young man, what happened to him is there was a series of awakenings. Um, the first awakening was an awakening to longing, that God has created us to be loved, and God has created us to have a purpose in our lives. This guy had to figure out what life was all about. He thought he was going to go use his money to obtain love. He thought he was going to go and find his way, and he really didn't find his way. He got lost. And then we looked at an awakening to regret. It, the, it says that he came to his senses, and he realized, this is not where I want to be, and he just wanted a chance to start over. And then an awakening to help. He realized he could not do this on his own. He needed the help of his father. <clears throat> and so this week we want to look at this idea of awakening to love. Awakening to love. If you're there in your Bibles, look in verse 20. Look in verse 20 of Luke chapter 15. <clears throat> In verse 20 it says, So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him. You know, he didn't text his dad and say, Dad, I'll be there in 20 minutes. And, and you wonder, well, was it just chance or fate? The father looked at him and said, Oh, guess, look who's coming. I, I'm not sure that's the picture I would use. Because this represents God. I think the picture I would use is that he was waiting. He was waiting for his son to come home. Some of you know this experience of the father. Some of you have had a son or a daughter or a spouse that has gone off to a far and distant land. That said, I'm done with you. I'm done with your God. I'm done with your faith. I'm done with the way you do things. I'm just leaving. I'm doing things my way. And you know the anguish of the father. You know the anguish of waiting, wondering, will they ever walk through those doors again? Will I ever be able to give them an embrace that they will return again? Will they ever come home? 
And so this picture of the father as he sees his son coming home, what's going through the father's mind? What's going through the father's mind? One response, it would be a, not a hard to believe response, is that the father would say, I can't believe what you've done. How dare you even walk through those doors? You've blown everything that I've given you and it's gone? Do you realize the utter humiliation you put your mom and I through and this whole family and now you're walking back through those doors again? How dare you? That would be one response, wouldn't it? And I think some of us could say, I could understand that response. Some of us could say, I could even see myself saying that if my kid did what this kid did. But what does it say is the father's response? Look there in verse 20. It says he was filled with compassion for him. Something inside that father's heart was just overwhelmed with compassion for his son. And as I thought about it, I thought somehow the love that the father had for the son was greater than all the sin and offenses that the son had committed. You know, it's a little bit like parents, when you get that phone call, and if you have um, kids who are drivers, we've almost all had this phone call, where you get that phone call and they say, Mom or Dad, I was in an accident, and when you hear those words, your heart stops, your stomach drops, you pause because you're waiting for the next words to be what? And what? I'm okay, right? I'm okay. And your kid might say, you know, it was my fault. I wasn't paying attention. I, I wasn't walking where I was go- watching where I was going. It was an accident, and I'll, and I'll pay you back. And I, I, I know this is going to be difficult on our insurance. And you're like, no, none of that matters. None of that matters. The only thing that matters is that you're safe and you're alive doesn't matter how much that car costs or what it'll take to replace it or what it'll do to my... The only thing that matters is that you are safe and that you are alive. Somehow the Father had this ability to set aside all that the Son had done and just say the only thing that matters is that you are here and that you're alive. It's all that matters. Remember, this is what God the Father wants us to know about Him, about His heart for you. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter how far you've run. It doesn't matter how bad you've blown it. It doesn't matter what your story is that you've been writing. The Father is waiting for you to come and when you do he's not going to respond with guilt and shame he will respond with open arms and a heart of compassion it goes on to say that he ran to his son and threw his arms around him and kissed him and as you think about um, him running to his son um, you know dignified men don't run who runs? Kids run, right? They got lots of energy. They're probably running up there, you know, hopefully wearing themselves out so they don't make Easter dinner a disaster for you, you know. Hopefully that's what they're doing up there, you know. Um, God bless those people that run with them up there. Great team of people. 
you know, teenagers run because they're what? They're chasing one another, tormenting their, you know, their younger siblings. You know, they're teasing guys and girls. You know, they run. You know, people in trouble run, right? And then the police officers, the one they're running to catch the people in trouble. Um, that's who runs, right? Athletes run. Um, you run if you're going to miss your plane. Anybody had to run if you're going to miss a plane? I've had that happen, right? You're, you're going to run, right? You're going to take off. But, but that doesn't happen to important people, does it? You know? They ever say, come on, President Trump, let's go. Air Force One, we're late. Let's pick it up. Let's run. You know, no, they were waiting for him, right? They're waiting, and he's just walking, right? He's just walking. Important people, they, people wait for important people. They don't run. But this guy ran. He ran because this is the most important thing in his life was his son. And he came home. And all he could think about is what he said in verse 24. My son who was dead is now alive. My son who was lost is now found. And so what do you think was going through the son's mind when this was happening? What do you think was going through the son's mind? I'm not quite sure what dad's doing here. Is this for real? Am I in a dream sequence here and I just woke up? You know, what's, what's going on? What's going on? I'm, I don't deserve this. I don't deserve this. And so look at the son's response there in verse 21. The son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. And the first step in awakening the love that God has for you is the first step is to confess our sin, to own up to it. To own up to it. And this is a critical part of the process. Con- confession enables me to experience God's grace and break free from shame. And see, guilt is when I've done something wrong. Shame is when I don't think I'm worthy or good enough. And the son felt both of those in this passage. The son acknowledged. He said, I've sinned against God, against heaven, and against you. He acknowledged his responsibility, his fault. And when we do something wrong, what's triggered inside of us is this sense of guilt. And guilt makes us aware that we've done something wrong. And the son realized he had to confess it. Someone said this, confession is good, to the, good for the soul. And there's incredible freedom in confession. In 1 John 1, verse 8 and 9, John the Apostle writes this. He says, if we claim to be without sin, we fool ourselves. If you don't think you've sinned, if you don't think you've messed up or blown it, you're... You're deceiving yourself. But then he goes on to say in the next verse, if we confess, what does God do? He's faithful. He's just. He will forgive. And He will purify. You see what confession does when we confess what's taken place in our lives, when we confess to God, when we confess to others, there's this free fall of God's grace that pours out in our lives. All He does is say, confess it. Own up to it. Say what you did. That's what the word confess means. Just say it. Because God's waiting to unleash His mercy and grace on your life. When we don't do that, guilt just eats us up inside. Psalm 51, 3, David says this. He says, For I recognize my rebellion, it haunts me day and night. And that's what we've been talking about in this series. Awakening to regret. Looking back at the things that we've done. And making sure that I don't just say, I'm going to wipe my hands of it and move on. But I'm going to face it. I'm going to own it. I'm going to name it. I'm going to confess it. And then I'm going to be freed from it. David experienced this because guilt, if it's unresolved, is dangerous, unhealthy, and destructive. And David eventually dealt with his own guilt that he's talking about. He's talking about his adultery, his sinful 
sexual relationship with Bathsheba. But later in Psalm 51, he says this. He says, forgive me for shedding blood, O God who saves me, then I will joyfully sing of your forgiveness and seal my lips that my mouth will be able to praise you. Secret sin cannot exist if we have the peace of God in our lives. You see, guilt says I've done something wrong, and the son recognized that. He said, I've sinned against the heavens, the heavens, and I've sinned against you. Shame says there's something wrong with me. I'm defective. I'm broken. I can't be fixed. And that's what the son said. Look at the second phrase there. The son says, I am no longer what? Worthy to be your son. There is something broken and unfixable in me. Brene Brown in her book, Daring Greatly, says this, Based on my research and the research of other shame researchers, I believe there's a profound difference between guilt and shame. I believe that guilt is adaptive and helpful. It's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling some discomfort inside. I define shame as an intensely painful feeling and experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of this. She goes on to say, I don't believe shame is helpful or productive. In fact, shame is more likely to be a source of destructive, hurtful behavior than the solution or the cure. I cannot think, I think the fear of disconnection as a result of shame is one of the most dangerous things that people can experience. See, shame is a dangerous enemy that keeps us from our true identity. Guilt opens the door for us to experience forgiveness for God to offer that to us and we confess it. But what shame does is shame keeps us from letting know God made you in his image and deeply loves you. You say, well, John, how do I deal with shame? If confession is the way to deal with guilt, how do I deal with shame? Well, the way to deal with shame is to experience God's grace, to experience this undeserved favor. When you messed up and you know it and you take responsibility and you let God take care of the change. How many people know what uh, this thing is right here? Everybody know what this thing is? Oh, you must be old. I asked my wife where to find this. You've got to go to old people to find this, she said. They got it in their basement or garage or attics or something. Anyway, so you know this is an Etch-a-Sketch. There's my little thing up there. So, um, you know, you know, you turn the knobs and, oh, I was going to go that way. I was just trying to make some steps. That's all I was trying to make is steps. Um, I'm not very good at this, but I'll at least maybe figure out, there we go, I got some steps. But, you know, people have done amazing things with Etch-a-Sketch. It's far greater than I can know. Some pictures on the screen of them, you know, you can use an Etch-a-Sketch. Maybe there's your picture of Elvis, you know. Or maybe the Mona Lisa, how about that, you know, if you're kind of bored one day. Or for the little more contemporary, maybe Will Smith, you know, there's some... But, you know, I, I just want to make steps. That's because if I try to do anything other than steps, I can't even go backwards or forwards. I'm going to mess this thing up. But, you know, what do you do when you mess up an Etch-a-Sketch? What do you have to do? Shake it up, right? Yeah, you've got to shake it up, and then what happens? You get to start all over. And this is what happens when we deal with sin in our lives. When we confess, we get to shake everything up, and God says, now, start over. Start over. That's what God says. But shame says, man, I can't believe, you're a horrible artist. How, where'd you learn how to draw? Didn't anybody teach you how to draw? Shame says, I'm, I'm going to hide this thing. I don't want anybody to see this. I'm kind of embarrassed by it. You know, shame pulls it out, looks at it again. Man, what an idiot. Who taught you how to do that? You can do, can't you do any better than that? That's what shame does. 
keep trying to fix it, and every time you fix it, what happens? It just gets worse, right? It just gets worse. You know, when we shake this all up and we confess our sins, then God says, it's a chance to start over. And that's what the son said. He said, I have sinned against heaven and against my father. But he also took on something that wasn't his to take on. He said, I'm no longer worthy to be your son. He said, I messed up. I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. I blew it. I can't believe it. I'm going to hide this. I'm not worthy. You say, what helps us deal with the shame? Well, grace is a step towards that. Because in grace, you get a fresh start. But there's another part to dealing with the shame. And that's being overwhelmed with honor. To be overwhelmed with honor. The first part of awakening to love is confessing my sin, opening my heart to grace. And the second part is to be overwhelmed with honor. The son was going to need a totally new image of himself. And how would the father bring this about? How would the father bring this about? Would he use words? Would he say, no, 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 that's not true, that's not true. You're my son and you'll always be my son and nothing will ever change that and I will always love you. He could have said those words, couldn't he? Sure, he could have. And those are important words to say. I'm not minimizing words like that when you want to extend grace. But, but what does the father do? He doesn't say words. The father acts. Because the father wants the son to have a visible reminder that he will always be his son. Look what he does in verse 22. It says, The father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on my son. The father didn't say, Can someone find this guy some decent clothes? He's really kind of smells. We need to get this dude in the shower. You know, Anybody got anything that fits? No, what did the father say? The father said, Bring him what? The finest robe. Bring that fine, bring that robe over here. And he took the finest robe. He didn't bother to clean him up. He just went to wrap his son in that robe. And the son's like, no, no, dad, let me just, let me go get to the shower. Let me get cleaned up. And the father said, no, no, no. I want you to know that you are my son. And I want you to put on the finest robe that I've got. And as the father envelops the son, the son finally pauses and rests, knowing he didn't have to do anything to earn the father's favor. He didn't have to do anything to clean himself up, anything to make himself better. And then what does the father do? It says, the father says, get a ring for his finger. Find me a ring for his finger. You know, the ring in that culture was a symbol of, of power and authority. You know, when you had a, a ring, it would have usually some type of a crescent or something to represent your family and who you were. And so when you would send a a document, you would roll it up and you would put some wax on the seal and you stamp it with that ring. And so when the person received it, they would know who it came from and that seal wasn't broken. You knew it was authentic. You would meet the king, you would kneel before the king and you would do what? You would kiss his ring, right? And so the ring was a symbol of power and authority. The giving of the ring is a transferring of power and authority. It's as if the father said, here you go, son, here's my credit card. And here's access to all of my funds. After the son had just done what the son did. The father wanted this son to have no doubt in his mind that he was more than worthy to be his son. Not because of anything he had done but because of everything that the Father did. 
Joseph experienced this. We looked at his story two weeks ago. And when Joseph in the Old Testament was made the ruler over all of the land of Egypt, look in Genesis 41, 42, 40 and 42, it says, Pharaoh said to Joseph, I put you in charge of the whole land. Then Pharaoh did what? He took his signet ring from his finger, put it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in robes of fine linen because he didn't want there to be any question, any doubt that he was placing upon him the complete authority of the Pharaoh in all of the land of Egypt. And the father does this for the prodigal son. And the last thing he does, if you go back there in the story, is he put sandals for his feet. In ancient Israel, the, the ones who wore shoes were the homeowners. The slaves, they were the one who wore sandals. Remember what the son was going to negotiate with the father? He was going to come back and say, Dad, if I, can just, if I can just work for you, if I can just be one of your slaves, I'd be more than, I would be so honored if you could just let me be a slave. And the father says, no, 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 no. He said, I don't want any mistaken. There's nobody that's going to assume that you are a slave. I want everyone to know you are my son. And so I'm going to put a robe on your shoulders. And I'm going to put a ring on your finger. And I want to put shoes on your feet. So that everyone knows that you are my son. He then goes on in verse 23 and 24 to bring out the fatted calf, to have a celebration because his son who was dead is now alive. His son who was lost is now found. How do you deal with shame? The sense of unworthiness? You can't do anything to get rid of that. The only way that is removed is for you to come to the place in your life, you to come to the place in your faith journey where you recognize that the God of the heavens has made you in His image, has placed in you glory and honor. You say, but John, I don't feel very honorable. I don't feel very glorious. And the best way I can describe it to you, it's like a trophy. It's gold, but it's got tarnish on the outside. And God says, I want to wipe that tarnish away. And the way I wipe that tarnish away is by sending my son to take on all of your punishment, the shame of the cross, for you. And when you receive that, he begins to wipe that tarnish away. And the glory that God has put in every man, in every woman, in every student begins to be seen. And so the resurrection that we celebrate today, this resurrection of Jesus rising from the dead, is a picture of what God wants to do in every single one of our lives. He wants us to face the pain and the suffering and the death of this life, of trying to live life on our own, of trying to find our own way without God, and for us to come to the utter end of ourselves and to recognize there's no hope, there's no way without Jesus. 
And to be willing to say, I am willing to die to myself. I'm willing to die to all of my ways, my solutions, my plans. Because I want to come alive and I want Christ to be alive and seen in me. And that's what makes Easter so significant. It's not just a historical reminder of an event that happened decades and centuries ago. It is that. But it's what Jesus says is an opportunity to happen in your life, in this life, if you choose to follow Him. The story of the prodigal son is every one of our stories of walking our own way, whether physically or in our minds, away from God. And coming to our senses and recognizing our need and then coming to Him and being made of our awareness of what we need and confessing our sin and acknowledging our unworthiness and being celebrated and honored in a way that we never deserve and could never earn. And the fatted calf being slain and a party in our honor in heaven now and forever. So where are you at in the story? Where are you at in the story? Have you wandered away to a far and distant land? And maybe someone talked you into coming. You're not sure why they did, but maybe they're giving you lunch afterwards. Maybe you didn't wander away, but in your mind, you, you're not really connected to God at all. And He's inviting you back. He's inviting you back. And he's saying, will you come back to me? It's going to require you taking ownership of your part. It's going to require you confessing your sin and saying, God, I've wandered from you. It's going to require you saying, I'm really not worthy. And God's saying, I'll take care of that on your behalf. And so no matter what your story, what your struggle, what your shame, He's inviting you to come home. He says there's a table that's set. There's a robe and a ring and sandals waiting for you. Will you come home? And if you choose to come home, your life will be transformed. And just like Jesus came out of that tomb, it is if you will come to life that God's designed in you out of the tomb of your shame and your sin and be alive in ways you've never imagined possible in this life today. As we close, I want to invite you just to listen to this song and may this song be a prayer of yours today. I was buried beneath my shame 